certainly felt very blessed thus far in the services this morning. I sure appreciate Brother John Tyndall's very fervent prayer. Enjoyed the singing, the spirit that's very evident, and all those are very important things. This is the Lord's house, and we pray for the Lord's presence, and that's how we know the Lord's here, is when we feel the manifestation of His Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians, there is liberty. This morning I'd like to center my remarks around a verse that's found in Acts 4 and 13. Acts chapter 4 and verse 13. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled, and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. And beholding the man which was healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. Now the they here that saw the boldness of Peter and John are identified to us in this earlier chapter. Look in verse 1. As they spake unto the people, the priest and the certain of the temple or the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now these people were grieved that Peter and John were preaching about the resurrection. I enjoy preaching about the resurrection. And I believe you, as members of this church and the Lord's people in general, enjoy hearing about the resurrection, but the Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection. And they were grieved at the teaching of Peter and John. And so they laid hands on them and put them in hold, which means a a prison, unto the next day, for it was now eventide. They're going to have to spend a day and night in jail, in prison. Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed. And the number of the men was about 5,000. And it came to pass on the morrow that their rulers and elders and scribes and Annas the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the kindred of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power, what name have you done this? Now they're talking about this lame man that Peter and John had healed by God's power. Now the book of Acts is a book of history. It's about church history. It's about the history of the Lord's church that he established when he was here, that he said in Matthew chapter 16, upon this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. When I speak about the church, I'm speaking about the Lord's church. I'm speaking about the church that our Savior established himself upon his person and his work. I'm not talking about the churches of men. I can give you dates, the year, where all major religions were started, the origin of them. And you'll find it's less than 2,000 years old. The Lord's church is 2,000 years old. The Lord's church, and I believe that we have the identification of here as, as old Baptists or primitive Baptists, it's based upon the doctrine of the Bible. It's based upon the practice that's taught us in the scriptures. It's based upon what God's word teaches us concerning our relationship with God, that we're his children not based upon free will, but free grace. We're his children based upon unconditional election. And it's God who elected his people, his people didn't elect God, etc., and so forth and so on. And so we find, as we begin to read the book of Acts, in chapter 1, you're going to read about the ascension of Jesus. Jesus spent 40 days on this earth after his death, burial, and resurrection. In Acts chapter 1, you read about his departing this world and going back home to be with the Father, his ascension into glory. 
In chapter 2, you read a, a very familiar chapter, many people, because it's the chapter in which the Apostle Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost. And his sermon was so greatly blessed, about 3,000 were added that day, gospelly speaking. About 3,000 were added to the about 120 disciples that existed prior to that time after the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you come to chapter 3. And we find that the Lord has devoted two chapters, chapters 3 and 4, to this particular event. And if you pay close attention, you will notice that there's a heavy emphasis in the book of Acts in general, but especially in the earlier chapters, on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything was done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. A name carries with it reputation. A name may carry with it authority. Now, if you were the present United States, your name, you know, comes with a lot of authority, responsibility. Ordinary people may not have that, but everybody's name can carry reputation with it. That's why the Bible emphasizes a good name is better than great riches. And so the emphasis is on the name of God's Son, on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we come to the third chapter, and you're going to find, as it opens up, we find Peter and John together. Now, Peter and John were two of the twelve apostles. Each one of them had a brother. Peter had Andrew for a brother, and John had James. And we find of the twelve apostles, three of them, Peter, James, and John, formed what we call an inner circle. And the Lord took them to certain, certain places and involved them in certain situations that the other nine were not involved in. And then here we find that James is not in the picture, but it's Peter and John. Now, Peter denied the Lord Jesus Christ three times. The apostle Peter had a very bitter experience prior to the crucifixion of Jesus. And the apostle Peter went out weeping bitterly. And so perhaps the Lord connected the apostle John to Peter for those reasons. John is known as the apostle of love. He was a man of great compassion. Uh, John, I believe, would have been the, seemed like the appropriate one to help Peter. And it's nice to have somebody to pick us up when we're down, isn't it? It's nice to have somebody to come along and help us when we've gone through a terrible time. We've gone through some things, maybe physically, mentally, emotionally, whatever it might be. To have somebody that has compassion and can walk with us. And so I don't know, perhaps this is some of the reasons now we find John closely connected with Peter. And of course, they'd been connected in other ways. And we'll say more about this if the Lord will bless us a little bit later on. But Andrew and Peter and James and John being two brothers, two brothers worked together as fishermen. That's what they were doing when the Lord Jesus Christ come along and called them from that to become fishers of men. And they worked for James and John's father, Zebedee, who had hired servants, which tell me that his fishing business was a very profitable business. And so his two sons, James and John, worked for him, and now Peter and Andrew worked for him, these four together in the fishing business. But the Lord will call these four and they will labor together as fishermen of men. These four are part of the 12. But now we find Peter and John. 
And you're going to find that this is really the last time we find Peter and John together in the Scripture. And that's not the last time we read of Peter or John. Peter is highlighted in the first 12 chapters of Acts. And of course, the Apostle John will be used of the Lord to write the Gospel of John. He'll write 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He'll write the book of Revelation. The Apostle Peter will be used of God to write two letters, 1st and 2nd Peter. So, as chapter 3 opens up, we find Peter and John going up to the temple at the hour of prayer together. And I see them together physically. They were together. I see them together, and they both saw the need of prayer and the purpose of prayer and the importance of prayer. And they're going up to the temple to pray. The temple was the place of worship in the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the chosen city of God. God chose Jerusalem. Men did not choose Jerusalem to put God's name there. God chose Jerusalem to put his name there. And God had the temple built there as the place of worship. And we look at several cases in the Old Testament, for example. When Solomon dedicated the temple that you read over in the book of 1 Kings chapter 8, when he dedicated the temple, he, part of it, the dedication as he prayed to God was that when they went out to battle against the enemy and they turned to God and prayed to him and turned their faces toward Jerusalem, toward the temple, that God in heaven would hear their cry. I find Jonah in a very unusual place. I go to the book of Jonah chapter 2 and I find him in the belly of a whale in the depths of the sea. Now, Bible readers know how he got there. Right now, I just want to look at where he's at. And he's in the belly of a whale in the depths of the sea. And the Bible says that Jonah turned his face toward the temple of God. Now you tell me how he did that without a GPS. You tell me he's in the belly of a whale in the depths of the sea. And in that condition, he turns his face toward Jerusalem, toward the temple. And he prays there. The temple had a, you know, it was very significant. Jerusalem was very significant. Because again, this is a place where God had set aside and put his name there for his people to worship him. We can give you some other places. If you go to Psalms 5-7, you'll find where David said the same thing, that he would turn his face toward his, the house of the Lord, which is the temple. So they're going up to the temple to pray at the hour of prayer. Now, the transition, after the Lord departed and went to heaven, the transition of the church from Jewish believers to Gentile believers was not overnight. It was, a, again, a, you know, a slow process. A, a transition was taking place, but it didn't just happen immediately. And so the Jewish converts at this time were still used to going to the temple. The temple has not been destroyed. It will be destroyed in 70 A.D. by the Roman army. Right now, the temple is still there. So they're going up to the temple to pray. And they go up at the hour of prayer, which is the ninth hour. According to Jewish time, it's about 3 p.m. in the afternoon. So apparently they had set times to pray. That's, that's really not a bad idea. I'm not saying you've got to pray at 7 o'clock every morning, 12 o'clock noon, and 3 in the afternoon, that kind of thing. But I think uh, it's always good to start your day with prayer, don't you? I think it's always good to end your day with prayer. I'd say that's true. And I think it's always good to give thanks to God at least three times a day. As I said before, every one of us needs to pray a minimum of five times a day. You got three meals, you start your day, you end your day. That's, that's five reasons right there every day to pray. If you want to throw another couple in there throughout the day, that'd be fine too. There's always a, a place for emergency prayers, you know, like Peter had. I mean, when Peter is sinking, 
uh, I don't know what hour of the day it was, but Peter wasn't waiting around to the ninth hour. <laughs> Peter had to have help and he had to have it right then. So he cried out to God right then. He said, Lord, save me. That was a, an emergency prayer. Prayed immediately on the spot and God answered it. Well, Jesus did and took him by the hand and delivered him from drowning, you see. Now, if you look in Psalms 55, 17, you will find where David says, I will pray unto thee at noon and in the evening and in the morning. That's three Pacific times that David spoke about praying to God. You go back to the book of Daniel in chapter 6. Uh, there, verse 10, you'll find where Daniel turns his face. That's another one I meant to mention a while ago. He turned his face toward the temple to pray, and he prayed three times a day. In fact, he opened up the windows toward Jerusalem, and he prayed three times a day. And he did that knowing that a decree had been signed by the king, that anybody to pray to any other god than the king's god would be cast into a den of lions. The Bible says when Daniel knew the decree had been signed, he still did this. He didn't change his behavior. He didn't change his pattern. He didn't change his manner and way of doing things. He went right on just like he did every single day. And because of that, the king will speak to Daniel, and he will tell Daniel, the God whom thou servest continually... Now, I wonder why he said continually. He had to observe the life of Daniel. He had to observe that Daniel uh, served his God on a daily basis, not just a once a week basis, but a daily basis, you see. Uh, so he had a wonderful testimony before a heathen king, you see. So we find that Peter and John go up to the temple to pray, and they go up at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, which is about 3 p.m. in the day. And they're met by a lame man, a certain lame man. And the lame man laid there at the temple. Now this, uh, people pretty much agree, this is the east gate uh, there as they would come in. And this lame man is there asking alms of the people. Lots of people would be going through there and there'd be other lame people there. Without a doubt, other people with different types of infirmities would be at the same spot, all asking alms. Uh, that was a pretty regular and expected thing in, in that particular day in, in Jewish culture. And so here's a man, and he sees Peter and John going into the temple. Peter and John are together. They're together as we all ought to be together. They're together side by side, going to the temple to pray. They're going to do the same thing, going to the same location. We all came, we all assembled ourselves together here this morning for the purpose of worshiping God. So we're together but I hope we're together. Just because you see somebody together doesn't mean they're together in other ways. Uh, we need to be together in every way, right? And so they're together in all the right ways here. And they go out to pray and they see this lame man. And uh, who's seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple asking alms. And Peter fastened his eyes upon him with, with John said, look on us. So try to visualize the scene if you will. And he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. Now, what he expected to receive was some money. He, he needed some money. But he's not going to get that. Then Peter said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee in the name, here's the name, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now, I've thought about this many different times. Here, here's the lame man. He, he thinks, you know, he needs some alms, he needs some help, he needs some financial help. And Peter and John were poor men, they didn't have any money. They didn't have any silver, they didn't have any gold. 
And so Peter says, silver and gold have I none. And at that very moment, you know how fast your brain can work, at least sometimes. Uh, you know, silver and gold have I none. But, one, you probably thought, well, what's the but here? If you don't have silver and gold, what else do you have that would help me and benefit me? Well, little did he know that Peter, through the power of God, was going to tell him to stand up, rise up, and walk in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. <laughs> this man got something far better than silver and gold, didn't he? He got his health back. He's now able to walk. He was lame. And you're reading the next chapter in chapter 4 where he'd been lame. Here it tells us from his mother's womb. Wasn't something that happened to him when he was later on in life, maybe when he was a teenager or a young adult and he had an accident. Thing. He was lame from his mother's womb. And the Bible tells us in the next chapter he was over 40 years of age. So he'd been lame for 40 years plus. But he's not going to be lame any longer. The Lord said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. He took him by the right hand and lifted him up. And immediately his feet and his ankle bones received strength. It wasn't a process. It was immediately. And he leaping up stood. I love the reaction of this man here. He leaping up stood and walked and entered with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. Can you see him? Can you visualize him? Uh, I think I mentioned this to you before, but uh, when I was over there in 1999, I was in this very area, and uh, I just uh, I could just visualize my mind. I thought about this text, and I could just see in my mind that man running all around me out there, just leaping and jumping and praising God for what happened to him. That, that's what he should have been doing, right? <laughs> I mean, can you imagine being lame for 40 years? You never walked, and all of a sudden now you're walking, now you're leaping, now you're running. And that leads to praising God. And they knew it is he which sat for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. Isn't it, isn't it appropriate that the name of this gate be called beautiful? A beautiful thing just happened, wasn't it? Peter mentioned the beautiful name of Jesus. Did a beautiful thing in healing the man. And they were all with wonder and amazement. That which had happened unto him as the lame man which was healed held Peter and John. All the people ran together. He drawed a great crowd. In the porch which is called Solomon's greatly wondering. And when Peter saw it, he answered the people, You men of Israel, why marvel ye at this? Or why look ye so earnestly on us, as though by our own power of holiness we have made this man to walk? Notice the humility of Peter and John. Then they desire no credit for this. They gave credit to the Savior. They gave credit to the Lord for doing this. They said, Don't look on us as if this man has received this power that came from us. He said, That's, that's not what happened. And then he says, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son Jesus, whom ye delivered up. Notice here what Peter's going to say to this crowd of people. He says, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son Jesus, whom ye delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. You remember how the story goes? Pilate came to the people on three occasions and says, I find no fault in this man. I find no fault, I find no fault. Should I release him unto you? They said, no, don't release him, you crucify him. Pilate was determined to let him go, but they would not hear to it. He said, but you denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you. That was Barabbas. You know the story I trust this morning. They had a choice. They could have Jesus released or Barabbas released. They could release uh, the only perfect, sinless, holy, righteous man to ever walk the shores of time who'd done nothing wrong. Or they could release Barabbas, who was a murderer, a thief, 
a man guilty of sedition, one of the most wicked men you're ever going to read about, had a criminal record a mile long, you would think the choice would be clear, wouldn't you? But their hatred for the Lord Jesus Christ overruled that. And they said, release Barabbas and crucify Jesus. Peter was bold, wasn't he? But you denied the Holy One, the just, and desired a murder to be granted to you and kill the Prince of Life, whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are all witnesses. And in his name, his name, through faith in his name, hath made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yea, the faith which is by him hath given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Now notice, perfect soundness. This man don't even have a pain right now. This man for 40 years who never walked, lame from his mother's womb, is now standing, he's leaping, he's walking, he's running, he's jumping <laughs> and praising God. He's got perfect soundness. And Peter says, it was done in his name, the name of Jesus, in faith in his name, the name of Jesus, the very one you denied, the very one that you slain, but also the very one that God raised from the dead. And all this is what led into chapter 4. They now are brought before the authorities of that day that I already spoke to you about in the beginning of chapter 4 in the book of Acts. And when they asked this question to the apostle Peter, said, by what power, by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people, elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to this impotent man, this man was lame, this man was impotent, but what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel by the name, the name now, of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you hold. We're told he was lame, we're told he was impotent. Now we're told he's whole, we're told that man now has perfect soundness. Then he says, this is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which come the head of the corner. This particular reference in Jesus is important enough that you find it in Psalm 118, verse 22. You find also in Isaiah 28, verse 18. You find it also in 1 Peter 2, 9. And you find it also in Matthew chapter 21. The Lord referenced it. Peter referenced it. Isaiah referenced it. And David referenced it. That the Lord Jesus Christ is the stone that the builders rejected. And the builders were the religious leaders of Israel, the Jewish people, the scribes, the chief elders, and um, you know, the Pharisees and them, that were the elders of that day, they were the builders that rejected the stone that was the headstone of the corner. And then notice this. this. This is a wonderful verse. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. The name of Jesus. Philippians chapter 2 verse 9 says, God, ha God hath highly exalted him, come out Jesus, hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. That the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I just enjoy saying that. <laughs> he hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. Why? That every knee and every tongue should confess, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is going to happen at the end of time. 
Every knee is going to bow to the Savior. Every tongue is going to confess. And their message is, this is Jesus Christ, God's beloved Son. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul asked the question. He says, what is exceeding great is his power to us who believe? According to the work of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And has set him in his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above every principality, every power, every dominion, and had given him a name above uh, every name, not only named in this world, but in the world to come. I say his name's important, wouldn't you? What a name. What a name we have in the name Jesus. It means Savior. So this is how Peter responds to the authorities. Now, notice in our text. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, <laughs> they're bold now. Now, this isn't the first time Peter and John's been bold. But you can be bold for the wrong reasons. If you contrast the boldness of Peter and John here with their boldness before the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, you find a, a very significant difference. That word boldness literally means with confidence and assurance. Now, they're looking on Peter and John, and they saw the boldness of Peter and John. Where was the boldness of Peter at the trial of Jesus. Where was his boldness then? He denied him three times, didn't he? did he not? No boldness there. But early on, I read in Matthew chapter 16, when the Lord Jesus Christ had asked Peter and the other disciples, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? That the apostle Peter says, some say you're Jeremiah, some say you're Elias, some say, uh, you know, you're one of the other prophets. Some say you're John the Baptist. He says, who say ye that I am? And Peter said, we believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is the context what I'm getting to. And Jesus said, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto thee, but my Father which art in heaven. Now notice that's a doctrinal point right here. He says, flesh and blood did not reveal to you that I am Jesus, the Son of God. Flesh and blood didn't reveal it to you. I can't reveal this to anybody. I can't reveal this to my sons, my grandchildren, or my friends or neighbor, I cannot reveal this, what Jesus is saying right here, to anybody. I can tell you about it, but I can't reveal it to you. If you understand and believe it, it's because it's been revealed to you by God. Flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto you, but my Father which art in heaven. And blessed art thou, Simon Barjona. Simon Barjona is blessed to have this, conf this confession that he brings forth here, this belief. And then the Bible says, a few verses later, that Jesus began to tell them about how that he would suffer many things at the hands of the scribes and chief priests and elders, and that he would be killed, and that he'd be raised again the third day. And the Bible says, and Peter took him and said, not so, Lord, here's Peter's bonus, not so, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. And the Lord Jesus Christ said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savest the things that be of men and not the things that be of God. Here's some boldness in Peter, but it's not the right kind of boldness, is it? Can you imagine rebuking Jesus Christ? It says he took him and rebuked him. He took Jesus and rebuked him. It says these things shall not be when Jesus just got through saying these things shall be. Now that's boldness, isn't it? That's boldness in the flesh. It's boldness in man. It's boldness in the flesh. It's not boldness in the spirit. It's not boldness in God, you see. 
Come to Matthew chapter 26, the Lord Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. And when he's there, we find where Judas Iscariot has betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. And we find where he leads a band of soldiers, Roman soldiers, to, to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is. And Peter is going to draw a sword. He's going to cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest. That's bold, isn't it? But that's boldness in the flesh. That's boldness in man, not boldness in the Lord. And the Lord Jesus Christ told Peter to put his sword up. And you read the other accounts, you'll find when Jesus then took the ear, the servant of the high priest, he put it right back on the head of the man whose ear it belonged to. And in doing this, Peter's life was saved by Jesus. And not Jesus displayed his great power and compassion there. No doubt they'd have taken Peter away and slew him. Jesus, no doubt, saved Peter's life on that occasion right there. Tells Peter, put thy sword up. He said, know you not that I could call upon my father? And at this very time, he would send me 12 legions of angels. A legion is 6,000. He said, I could pray to my father. And instantly, 72,000 angels would be here right now. <laughs> that was bonus, wasn't it? But it was the wrong kind of bonus. It was bonus in the flesh, bonus in man. And Peter here used boldness in the wrong way. He used boldness in taking rebuking Jesus. He used boldness in the wrong way in taking his sword and taking off the ear of the head of the high priest, the servant. I've heard it said, I'm going to agree with this, that Peter wasn't aiming for the ear. He was aiming for the head. He just missed. Got the ear instead, thank, <laughs> thankfully. But uh, come over here to the ninth chapter in the book of Luke. We hadn't uh, forgot about John's boldness. And we come in the ninth chapter in the book of Luke, and you'll find where it says, uh, and, Jesus, and it came to pass when Jesus knew uh, the time of ascending to the Father had come. Notice this. When his ascension should come to be with the Father, he set his face steadfastly toward Jerusalem. When I read that, I thought, we're overlooking some stuff, aren't we? There's a lot of things going to happen between now and the time that Jesus ascends. How about all the suffering Jesus is going to have to endure between the time that's written and the time he ascends into heaven? Kind of reminds me of John 13, 1, which says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew the time of his departure had come to depart out of this world to be with the Father. We're talking about the departure of Jesus out of this world to what? Be with the Father. But before that can happen, something else has to happen, right? What else has got to happen? A crucifixion. There's going to be great sufferings that Jesus is going to have to go through and endure. And he's going to have to be crucified. He's going to have to lay his life down on Calvary, be crucified with nails in his hands and nails in his feet and a sword piercing his side. All these things are going to have to take place before he can depart this world to be with the Father and before he can ascend into glory. So what's Jesus thinking here? Well, Jesus is overlooking all of this to what's going to happen at the end. Look in Hebrews chapter 12. Seeing we're incompassed with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and these sin that death so easily beset us, looking unto Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising his shame, and set down the right hand of the majesty on high. The Lord has not forgotten all the sufferings he's going to have to go through. The Lord hasn't forgotten he's going to have to be crucified and hung on a, a wooden cross. He hasn't forgotten any of that. 
That's not what his mind's on right here. His mind's on going back to be with the Father. I've heard people say, I don't really mind death so much. It's just what's going to happen between here and death that I'm concerned about. <laughs> well, it doesn't seem like Jesus who's concerned about what's going to happen between this time and his ascension as the Father, but he's going to go through more sufferings than you could possibly imagine here this morning. He's going to bear our sins, his own body, through the tree of the cross. He's going to lay his life down. He's going to be crucified. A crown of thorns will pierce his precious brow. Nails go through his hands and his feet. And he'll hang between two thieves on Calvary. It says he set his face steadfast to go to Jerusalem. And he sent some messengers to go before him into Samaria. And the Samarians received him not because his face was set as a flint to go to Jerusalem. So what do we have here? The Samaritans believed the place of worship was not in Jerusalem. They believed it was in Mount Jerusalem. The Jews believed the place of worship was in Jerusalem, the temple, which was correct. But the Samaritans didn't believe that. The Samaritans believed the place of worship was in Mount Jerusalem. And so there was animosity between the Samaritans and the Jews. The Jews basically were uh, half Jew, half Gentile. The Jews despised the Samaritans. The Samaritans despised the Jews. And the typical Jew, if he was going to go from Jerusalem up here to uh, Judea, he would not take a straight course through Samaria. He would take a detour and go around. But the straightest course for these two points I was just talking about is to go right through Samaria. That's why when Jesus said in John chapter 4, I must needs go through Samaria, the disciples wondered about that. That's where Jesus met the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. There was a person that Jesus was going to deal with in Samaria, a Samaritan woman, and that's why he says we must go through Samaria. The Jews, generally speaking, took a detour and went around. They wouldn't go through Samaria. And these Samaritans received him not. And when the news came to the disciples that these were Samaritans was not going to receive him, was not going to allow him to go through their village of Samaria and reside there overnight, so to speak, we find where James and John came to the Lord and said, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven and consume them? <laughs> like Elias did. They, oh, they were scriptorians right here. Uh, they remembered in 2 Kings chapter 1 uh, uh, when Elijah called fire down from heaven and he consumed that captain of 50 and another captain of 50 and another captain of 50 came on the scene and said, have mercy upon us. <laughs> and, and the Lord said, you can go with them. But Elijah called fire down. You know what the nickname God gave to Peter, excuse me, James and John, he called them the sons of thunder. Now they won't be the sons of lightning. They won't, God, Jesus, give them the, the liberty, the power to call upon God. He's going to send fire to them and consume those Samaritans. That's bold. That was boldness in the flesh. That was boldness in the flesh. Boldness in man. Here's what Jesus told them. Jesus says, you know not what manner of spirit you are. He said, I didn't come to destroy man. I came to save man. They rebuked. Jesus rebuked them. They were bold in that, were they not? <laughs> they wanted to wipe them away. Jesus said, you don't know what spirit you're in. Now, we need to be bold for the cause of Christ. But let's don't be bold in the flesh. Let's don't be bold uh, in the works of, of man. Let's be bold in the spirit, right? 
So now over here in Acts 4 and 13, you're going to find where all these authorities, they see the boldness of Peter and John. They see how confident they are, how, how strong they are to stand in the face of this fierce opposition. And they see that boldness. And they perceived they were unlearned and ignorant men. And they marveled. Now, as I've told you before, there's a lot of difference between intelligence, IQ and intelligence, and ignorance. You can take the most intelligent person who's ever lived and put him in a bubble, never educate him, and he'll be a very ignorant, intelligent man. Right? Being ignorant does not mean that you're not intelligent. Anybody writes two letters, Peter wrote first and second Peter, John wrote again, John, first, second, third, John, Revelation, I, I think they're intelligent. I think we can say these are intelligent men. But what they meant was this. They had not been to the, to the higher schools of learning among the Jewish people. They thought their leaders and their teachers must go to to have respect for a teacher uh, like Peter and John were. Uh, you had to have a degree. You had to have credentials. You had to go and, and grow up at the feet of Gamal, that famous teacher among the Jewish people. You had to go to their religious schools of, of, of schools of religion, and they had been to none of them. These were fishermen. They marveled at the boldness of these two men. They couldn't deny a miracle took place. The man that was lame, that had been given his health back, was standing right beside them as a witness to it. Says they were the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived they were unlearned and ignorant men. Who was really ignorant here? You go back to the third chapter, you're going to find where the Apostle Peter tells the people when they crucified the Lord Jesus Christ, they did it in ignorance. I read about a man named Moses one time that spent the first 40 years of his life in Egypt. And in Acts 7.22, Stephen is speaking here, and he says that Moses, Moses was learning all the Egyptians' wisdom and knowledge and understanding. He had a real high education. But that didn't qualify him for what God had in store for him. So God's going to move him out of there for 40 more years to a desert. He's going to go to the institution of heaven, University of Heaven, for 40 years. He's going to spend the middle 40 years of his life on the backside of a desert between him and God, and here's where he really got the right kind of education every man of God needs. I imagine they had a lot of conversation, don't you? I imagine Moses did a lot of praying back there as he watched over his, his sheep by night and the daytime, led, led them, guided them, protected them, etc., etc. Just him and God on the backside of that desert. When he was 80 years old, God says, You're ready. You're ready. The Jewish people. Paul writes in Romans chapter 10, first three verses, he said, Brother, my heart's desire and prayer for God, God for Israel is, they might be safe, for I bear them record they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For I bear them record. He says, they got a zeal. The zeal came from God, but it's not according to knowledge. And they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God, for Christ is in the law for rights' sake to everyone that believeth. Why were they ignorant? Did they not have access to information? Oh, they did. 
You go back to Romans chapter 3 and the apostle writes here and he asks the question, what advantage is that the Jew? He says, much in every way. Because unto them were committed the oracles of God, which means the mouthpiece of God. God gave them the written law. God gave them the prophets. They had a big advantage. But Paul says they're ignorant of God's righteousness. That is, what's required for God's people to have righteousness is the imputed righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ by representation. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, For he became sin for us, and you know sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So who's really ignorant here? Yes, Peter and John do not have formal degrees of education. They had not been to the higher uh, institutions of learning among the Jews of that day. And they marvel. These men have such boldness. These men have been used of God in such a powerful way. And Peter speaking by the power of the Holy Ghost, the power of the Holy Spirit. And then it says, they took knowledge of them that they'd been with Jesus. That's what I want to finish up with here this morning. They took knowledge of them that they, Peter and John, had been with Jesus. They'd been with Jesus a long time. You go back to Mark chapter 1, I made brief reference to earlier. You find where Peter and Andrew and James and John, you find Peter and Andrew are casting their nets and, 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 and James and John are mending their nets. They're fishing. They're partners together. And Jesus comes along and says to to them on two different, uh, you know, first of all to Andrew and Peter, and then to James and John, come you be followers of me, and I'll make you become fishers of men. And they immediately forsook their nets and followed Jesus. Yeah, they'd been with Jesus. They were Jesus with Jesus in their calling. They'd been with Jesus in that ship at sea in Matthew chapter 8, when Jesus was asleep in the bottom of the ship, and a great storm came upon the sea. And they cried out to Jesus, save us or we perish. And Jesus came up and said, peace be still. And that great storm became calm. And the Bible says, they marveled and says, what manner of man is this? Leaving the winds and the sea obey his voice. You know, that was Peter and John were there. They, they'd been with Jesus. And the second storm in chapter 14, Matthew when the disciples in that ship going across the storm uh, sea, they ran into a great storm, and Jesus comes walking upon the sea. And Peter gets out of the ship to walk to Jesus. He did the miraculous. Here's a man walking on water for a while. They'd been with Jesus. They witnessed this with Jesus. They witnessed three resurrections with Jesus. They witnessed... Jairus' daughter, 12 years of age, being raised back to life. They witnessed the widow woman's son of Nain, who was in a coffin away the cemetery, and Jesus gave him life. They witnessed that. They witnessed when Jesus said to Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus came forth. Yes, they'd been with Jesus. <laughs> when I begin to think of all the times that Peter and John were in Jesus, I just marvel at this. I'm just amazed. I can't hardly get my little brain wrapped around it. I mean, uh, just one of those experiences there would have... Uh, would have just, you know, been mind-blowing. And look at all the experiences they had. They witnessed three resurrections. They witnessed a, a woman with issue of blood for 12 years being immediately healed. They witnessed a man who was on his bed for 38 years, and Jesus told him to get up and put his, take up his bed and walk out of there, and they witnessed that. Yeah, they'd been with Jesus. He better believe they'd been with Jesus. They was with Jesus on top of the mountain of transfiguration when he appeared between Moses and Elias and transfigured before their eyes. They saw that on top of that mountain. 
Yeah, they'd been with Jesus. They were in Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. They were in Jesus. They witnessed that. When they could go no further, and the Bible says that Jesus went a stone's throw beyond them. And Jesus prayed three times to the Father. Father, be thy will. Let this cup pass, but not thy will be done. Yeah, they'd been with Jesus. They'd been with Jesus when he was hanging on upon a cross. They'd been with Jesus after his resurrection. Jesus appeared to them three times behind closed doors the first two times. And then on the seashore when they went fishing that night and caught nothing. And Jesus dressed them and prepared fish on the seashore. Yes, they'd been with Jesus. And they were in Jesus when he left this world in Acts chapter 1 and saw him defy the very laws of gravity and ascend from this earth and go right into glory. They'd been with Jesus. Have you been with Jesus? If I'm not mistaken, we've been with Jesus this morning. <laughs> Am I wrong? We've been with Jesus this morning. Have you been with Jesus when he said to you, turn your back on this world and follow me? Have you been with Jesus? Have you been with Jesus when you believe that you actually witnessed a miracle in your own life? How that God saved you and delivered you from the beggar elements of this world. He did something for you that you know in your own power and your own strength you could not do. But Jesus came down, my friends, and lifted you up as a beggar out of the dunghill. Have you been with Jesus? Have you witnessed the resurrection of somebody. You say, well, how, how, who, who's witnessed that? Well, have you ever met somebody that didn't show any love for God whatsoever and would take their fist and just shake it? I know of a man who became a, a very well-known primitive Baptist preacher in his early days when he was in the military. He would take his fist and shake it toward heaven and deny the very God of glory. Yet God dealt with him, delivered him, Wound up preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ as witnessing a resurrection. As you read through the Bible, as you read through the gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, do you feel like sometimes you're just walking hand in hand along the way with him? Could you feel his hand in your hand? Have you ever laid there in a hospital bed at night waiting to search you the next morning and pray and just feel like the Spirit of God just came down and lifted you up and encircled you with His everlasting arms and gave you a peace that passeth all understanding and gave you a good night's rest like He gave Peter when he was in prison? I've always wondered, Peter, how'd you do that? How in the world could you sleep in prison just knowing that, that James had been slain but Herod, but God gave him a peaceful night's sleep. He gave Daniel a peaceful night's sleep when he was in the den of lions. Him and the lions got along just fine. I don't know if the lions slept or not, but I know Daniel did. <laughs> the, the lions was probably afraid of Daniel. <laughs> they, probably, they probably was afraid that Daniel would do something to them if they slept. So I believe they probably stayed wide awake. <laughs> but Daniel didn't. Daniel slept. Have you been with Jesus? Have you been with Jesus to the extent that when somebody that knows you, a neighbor, a friend, a co-worker, you say, you know, I, I believe that man has been with Jesus. That's, that's the kind of life I want to live. I want to. I want to live a kind of a life that when I'm not around, I can't even hear anything. The body says, you know, I believe that man's been with Jesus. <laughs> if you've been with Jesus, it ought, to be, it ought to be reflected in your life. People ought to be able to see Christ, you being Christ-like. See him in your life. 
How did they know? How did they know that Peter and John had been with Jesus? It was something about it. Something about their life. They saw their boldness. Perceived they were ignorant and unlearned men, but with knowledge they understood that they'd been with Jesus. I'll tell you, there's nothing better than being with Jesus. And like I've told you before, I, I usually travel pretty much by myself now for different reasons. And uh, when I'm going down the highway, I, I just feel like the Lord is, is right there with me. I try to talk to him a whole lot. I know he already knows everything I'm trying to tell him. <laughs> I'm not informed about anything. But it does me a lot of good. It does me a lot of good to talk to him. And I know I can talk to the Lord about anything, and I know he won't tell anybody. I don't have to say, Lord, now, uh, if I'm going to tell you this, you can't tell nobody now. That's the surest way I know of to getting people to talk about what you want to talk about. You just get them to guarantee they're not going to tell anybody, and that's a guarantee they're going to tell everybody. <laughs> but I can talk to the Lord and say, I don't even have to tell the Lord not to tell anybody. He, he knows whether he needs to tell anybody or not. Have you been with Jesus? People ought to be able to see that in your life. They're able to see that in the lives of Peter and John.